Welcome back to another episode of Miso Soup for the Soul. Today with us, I have Joe. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on to my show. Hey, Jeanette. Uh, thanks for having me. So you and I, we've been friends for about two years now, right? Mm-hmm. And today we're going to be digging into your past a little bit. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, I'm about as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> Okay, great. So your childhood was different than most because you grew up in a cult. Yep, that's correct. Uh, I was born in a cult called the Children of God. Mm. And uh, after they got a lot of bad publicity in the 80s, they changed their name and now go by the family or the Family International. Mm. But um, yeah, I was born into the group and uh, I didn't get out until my parents began to removed themselves from it when I was around 12 years old, right around that time frame. Okay. Can you tell us about the cult and what it was like for you? Yeah, of course. Um, To give you a little bit of context, because moving forward, if I don't start with this, not a lot of what I say is going to make sense. So um, I'll start, I guess I could describe the environment, like Mm -hmm. kind of the the things that made it what it was. yeah. First, I guess there was there was a structure to it. So it wasn't just one big group. There was membership tiers. And depending on which level of a member you were, you were granted access or denied access to certain cult paraphernalia or practices. It basically dictated how they would treat you as a member. So you had brand new members, uh, FM, I think it was, but FM was like the middle. So you have brand new members, FM, and then CM, which is pretty much the highest level that you can get right below the founders. And uh, our family, we were CM. And depending on which com- compound you were in or what communities you were in, you know, they sometimes the communities would be mixed up and composed of different members. You know, mm-hmm. you'll have brand new ones living mm-hmm. and sharing the same spaces, CM and FM. And then other compounds were strictly for CM members, which is the top tier. Okay. So you were in the top tier. Yeah. Yeah. My family was, my mom was in it for years from early on in its inception. And yeah, she was a a dedicated group member, to say the least. (laughs) What does it take to be a CM? Like, what does that mean? It just means that the cult trusts you Mm. with privy information. So due to the cult's practices and beliefs, like on the surface, as far as the public is concerned, it's a church or like a church, so to speak. They don't identify as denominational. Um, but yeah, on the surface, you're it's a Christian-based organization that focuses on uh, missionary outreach and uh, basically, you know, typical Christ- spreading typical Christian ideologies like Christianity, mm-hmm. going into all the world, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, you know, and it, on the surface, it doesn't look much different than a lot of the churches, small churches and religions that you, you know, you can find those anywhere. Um, what you, what made it a cult was that once you're in it and you're allowed access to the more insidious things that go on in there, you mm-hmm. re- you start seeing it for what it is. And that's right around the FM stage. So like for new members, you wouldn't be told about any of the fucked up shit that goes on in there you know Mm, you think mm. you're really just you know serving god and living in a community and you know just living the life that 
on the surface, that's what it seems. When you get to FM, they slowly start introducing you to the more controversial things like um, like sharing, which is pretty much group sex and the expectation that if you're living in certain households, then pretty much anybody has, can have sex with you, which I'll get into that as we, as we mm -hmm. go down. But as far as the membership tiers go, yeah, that's pretty okay. much that. Um, the cult community basically put everybody in compounds and communes. I, I, I'm not sure if commune is the right word because commune implies like hundreds of people living under one, you know, on one property, like from the hippie area, from the hippie era. Mm -hmm. But um, compound is a little bit more accurate. You know, it's a secure facility. No, not a lot of people know about it. And you'll have uh, anywhere from 10 to 60 cult members living on one big piece of property. That was pretty common in a lot of places that we went. So as we move along, if I refer to a commune or a compound, uh, that's what I'm talking to you about. Um, okay. Regarding cult culture. Um, okay, so to paint a picture for you, the, cult, the culture of it was free love, right? And what that means is everybody shares everybody. Even if, you're, if you enter the group as a couple, if you're married, mm. if you have a relationship in the group, that's all fine. But the expectation there was that we share everything. No single person belongs to another. So that means that if you're a couple and you're in the group, then you are both expected to share quotation marks, which means it's a license to have sex with any other cult member in a group setting or individually, however you want. But that's that was the basic idea behind that. If you're living in a compound and somebody asks you to share, that's what they're asking. They're asking you to have sex with them. Mm -hmm. And if you're not okay with it, then yeah, you would be shamed uh, depending on the situation or the individual, you might be punished even. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as free of a culture as they would have advertised as they advertised, you know? So the idea of consent is not really there. Well, I mean, it's, you can say no. However, if you say no, you're, you got to realize that it's going to come with other implications. If you say no, you run the risk of offending somebody or being excommunicated from the group. And if you're a young, if you're young, if you're a kid, because, you know, kids weren't off limits, um, then yeah, you might be beaten if you were a kid. Well, kids can't give consent. And for adults, being pressured into it is not consent either. Yes. Okay. And a lot of the members were, you know, that's part of the the hook, line, and the sinker that they give you when they reel you in. That was, so for new members, I mean, that was one of the alluring things about this group was the sharing and free love uh, type of, you know, type of living. So a lot, most of the adult members were okay with that. It was the ones who were born in the cult and the younger kids and teenagers that had to had to deal with that aspect that you know they were really the only uh people against it because if you're joining up in this cult and you came from the outside chances are you're that's literally what you're there for is that aspect of it mm -hmm. so yeah i mean uh the idea of consent 
as far as kids and teenagers born into it goes, yeah, that, that did not exist. And if you did voice your opinion about it or didn't want to, yeah, you'd be punished. And that punishment mm. could be anything from a physical beating to excommunication from where whatever compound you were in. Mm-hmm. I mean, so from a kid from a kid's perspective, if you've been born in this thing and you don't know anything outside of that, being excommunicated is the equivalent of putting you on the street. And I mean, if you don't have any other skill sets to survive, you're just fucked. Mm. So yeah, there's that aspect of it. Um, there's also a lot of other things that came with the culture, like uh, brainwashing. So brainwashing was done in a number of ways. Um, one of the most, one of the most popular and public ones, ways of doing it that happened that, you know, they kind of stopped to doing it, I think, in sometime in the 80s or early 90s, after, um, like, the, the news station started reporting heavily on it, and it kind of blew up in the news right around then. Um, one of those mm-hmm. things was uh, called teen training camps. So they had entire facilities that uh, cult members could send their kids to, and basically it would teach your child how to behave. That's why they sent. That's why they sent the problem kids for you know for reformatting, if you will. They pretty mm-hmm. much they'll beat you senseless and stuff all kinds of ideologies down your throat until you're reiterating what they tell you and behaving as you you know as they want you to wow um yeah it was it was pretty aggressive um Mm -hmm. another another i mean and brainwashing didn't just happen in that form and in little instances it would happen every single day there's lots of little small things and practices that they would do to slowly you know just train your mind into thinking and behaving as they wanted like uh like daily prayer sessions and we had uh, daily Mo letter reviews. So a Mo letter is basically a letter from the cult leaders, like almost always written by David Berg, who was the leader of the cult. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times it was written by him. And then they would send that letter out to every community in the entire world and have them basically review the letter word by word. They'd sit everybody in a circle. You read it a couple of times. You discuss how you feel about it and what your thoughts are. And you better hope that your opinion is positive or else, you know, you're going to get in trouble. But um, it's little practices like that, that, you know, just kind of slowly make you conform to what they want you to be and what their expectations are in the cult. And it doesn't happen overnight, but if you subject somebody to that for long enough, it's eventually, they're eventually going to be reiterating your own thoughts as if it's their own. And if you're, a kid and that's all you've ever known it's probably easier to brainwash them in the way that you want them to right yeah yeah kids Mm. are very very impressionable and so Mm. yeah I mean speaking from experience I was born into it um like I that's all I knew for the first decade of my life and it really wasn't until I learned how to read and started picking up books and comparing my experience to others that other characters that I read about in these novels that I realized something was really, really wrong. Mm. And, you know, I'll get into that as we go on, but um, yeah, we're, since we're on the topic of the culture, um, another commonly held belief that this cult, as well as a lot of other religions and cults and history have had, it's the end of the world 
ideology or the belief that the world is going to end and we're living in the end times and we need mm-hmm. to prepare for it. That was a really heavy, um, really, a really heavy topic that they pushed. You know, they, they really stressed that. And a lot of them truly believed it, that the world is going to end any day. Uh, there's going to be a nuclear war or some other, some other catalyst that brings about the end of the world. And that's what we're preparing for. So that, um, mm-hmm. that was a very uh, recurring thing in my environment as a kid. You know, we were all expected to prepare for that and to memorize passages out of the Bible and scriptures, because we don't know if we'll have hardcover books and you need to be able to retain all this and pull the information from your memory. <laughs> like <laughs> they really made us uh, uh, memorize like entire chapters of the Bible when we were kids. But, and yeah. did, did they have a date of the end of the world? Yeah, actually, it's funny enough, uh, the cult leader before he died, he predicted the end of the world. And I can't remember what what date it was that he predicted, but I mean, it passed and nothing happened. <laughs> and yeah, they they issued some sort of formal bullshit statement about, I don't know, they just they kind of just uh, glossed over that and kept on keeping on. Oh, and no one thought that was weird unless they had. Like, oh, a I'm good sure. Reason. Yeah, I'm sure plenty of people thought he was full of shit and thought it was weird. But you got to remember that, like, think about it. The type of people that would join a sex cult are a very particular type. You know, they're if you're joining this thing because your friends are already in it and they're telling you how great it is, they're telling you and selling you on this based on the culture, the free Mm -hmm. love, the free sex, the group sex. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're into it, um child like children molestation and such Mm -hmm. so that being said it's like a lot of these people in this group probably didn't really give a fuck about Mm. that about all the other stuff and they're 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 just there for all the wrong reasons right so Mm -hmm. there's that to consider you know and then but as a coming i mean like from the perspective of somebody who was born into it like yeah i mean it's pretty hilarious (laughs) (laughs) that you know the very founder would would try to call the end of the world and be totally wrong were you still in the cult when the said end of the end of the world date yeah yeah I was, oh okay what was your impression honestly it wasn't even on my radar i didn't even realize okay. like i had forgotten about it it was just one of those things that somebody had mentioned when i was in the cult and i just i never really thought twice about it until mm-hmm. um, honestly until you jogged my memory just now like i forgot <laughs> i even knew that even happened but um yeah I mean, that's that's basically a high level summary of the culture. And, you know, there'll be other nuances that I'll pick out for you Mm -hmm. as we go on and explain as we go. But um, what else? Okay, so since we're still discussing the environment and the different aspects of this cult, Mm -hmm. um, there was there was a set of unspoken expectations from all the cult members. And this was new members and adults that had been it for years, like this applied to everybody. It was. Uh, for one, the cult expected you to to provide free labor for them. They want you to work for free. So you could work your ass off on a project for them or do any sort of contribution and you can't charge for it. It's just, it's it's free and that's what they expect from you. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like my dad, he was a auto mechanic and he had to fix everybody's vehicles in the cult just because that was his skill set. And he couldn't charge for it. He just It was just expected of him. They also expected you to uh, participate in all of their uh, outreach programs. So 
they would have different programs for different things. Like uh, they would have outreach programs for members that were trying to raise money to go to another country or for any other, you know, cult activity or business purpose. Um, and they would just, they would expect the adults to participate in that as well as the kids, like mm -hmm. nobody's exempt. Um, another expectation was any money that you made would be tithe at 15%. So tithe is a common church practice. It's not exclusive to cults, but it's, uh, it's basically um, a 10 to 15% tax that goes to the church or the cult or whatever group you belong to. They expected that mm. since a lot of the families, um, you know, they lived remotely. They didn't live all in compounds or anything. Like our family, we would move from compound to compound. And sometimes there'd be six months or a year in between where we're just traveling and we're on the road. But even at that point, any money that you make, they expect you to send 15% of it to the cult members. And I'm not sure how they justified that, but I mean, a lot of people did that, including my parents. Another thing they expected was just a general level of confidentiality between higher members and the cult leaders and any, commu any communications that happened in between. So um, like for example, CM members, which is you know the second to the top tier, they would get a different set of newsletters every month from the cults from the cult leaders and these newsletters would basically just include you know high level view of what's going on in the cult and what they want their members to be participating in and you know it would always include like a really long spiel about just general why we're doing what we do why this is good for you and why this why you need to do what we say and then you know they'd issue whatever monthly mm -hmm demands they had and these demands or instructions could be anything from you guys you should be hosting regular prayer sessions every day or and slowly i mean it started off that way and it slowly degraded into send us pictures of your children dancing around naked like that really happened mm. so yes. depending on what level of a member you were you'd get a different newsletter so uh, starting at the bottom, new members, they get cookie cutter, basic bullshit. Um, middle member or FM members, middle tier members, they would get, you know, maybe slightly more controversial, a little bit more edgy, but nothing that really like, you know, sound the alarm bells. There's mass abuse going on in this group. Nothing like that. Mm. For CM, yeah, that's where all the serious dirt is divulged. And that's where all the fucked up shit happens. That's that's you know you're in the thick of it at that point mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's basically a rough ex rough rough description of what the cult would expect from its different members and their tiers and since you were in the cm top level you got all the dirty mo letters yeah they're privy to everything all the fucked up shit that they would release and mm. yep that was that was my family or what level we were at what was it like when you were reading those mo letters as a kid to be honest i i thought it was kind of i thought it was cringy <laughs> if i had to pick one word i mean i mean as far as i remember i didn't necessarily know that these letters and instructions were fucked up i just knew well i take that back i knew i gradually learned 
mm. as I got older that it was wrong and fucked up and that, hey, this is not a normal living situation because being born in it, that's all that's all I ever knew. I lived in right. a bubble and mm-hmm. this is what normal life is like. And I never really questioned it until I learned how to read. That was your like initial reaction, yeah. even if you didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. I remember that being my initial reaction and I was like kind of embarrassed because it was so corny and cheesy and just Mm. lack of imagination involved in these things that it was just like, like really (laughs) like (laughs) even not, even when I didn't have like another, anything else to compare it to, I was, I just still felt like embarrassed to, Mm. I don't know. (laughs) It was just, it didn't feel right. Suffice enough, you know, sum it up to say it just didn't feel right. It was weird. Mm-hmm. And it was gross. A lot of the, a lot of the things that the cult would release and approve for the kids to be reading was just, you know, perverted, nasty shit. What other forms of media did they have beside the newsletters? Um, they would have. There, there was a lot. So the cult would re- would release like, you'd get packages in the mail every month or so, and it would contain all the latest cult stuff. So we had cult media, which was basically. Uh, media that was produced by other members and approved by the founders for dissemination to the entire group, depending on what level you're in. So you had like educational videos, for instance, which is like, you could compare it to like Blue's Clues, but, you know, it's a cult member with a puppet and they're singing a song about, you know, the alphabet, stuff like that. Um, And they had that for every age group going up because we didn't have like, we didn't have any formal education. Every child, including myself, that was in the group was homeschooled because they weren't allowed to go to public school. Mm. So if you had parents that weren't very hands-on in teaching their you know, new kids stuff, they would rely on these videos to teach their kids for them. And so I learned a lot about, you know, just general knowledge stuff that you would learn in like grade school and middle school. Uh, yeah, it came from these stupid silly videos and and it's kind of funny because like as <laughs> I can still remember some of them and it's like I, I mean it's definitely burned in my head you know <laughs> so yeah. I mean I mean it served its purpose it taught us some crucial skills for life as horrible as those things were I mean and annoying they were to watch I mean it, they served their purpose so that's you know one form of education or one form of cult mm. media that came out of them um Another thing I should mention that I'll probably refer to as we go on is the the movie rating system they had. So the cult wanted to monitor and restrict as much outside input as they could. So cult members weren't allowed to watch movies, like new movies in the theater or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Before you go see a new movie in the theater, you have to check the rating system that was updated and sent out to all the members every month. So the cult would have they didn't trust the PG, PG-13 R-rated restrictions that, you know, everybody uses. Um, they had their own internal rating system, which was far more strict, like uh, Disney movies, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, stuff like that. Um, you had to be, I think it was 16 years old in the cult before you could watch that, if you could watch it at all. Like not even all the Disney movies were on the list. They had very select movies and specific ratings for each one so i remember like as a kid really wanting to watch aladdin because you know when we're walking around in public and stuff i see the posters advertising it and Mm. stuff like that i remember really wanting to watch this and it it wasn't on the 
on the rating list. And I remember being frustrated by that because <laughs> like, I really wanted to see that. And it was just not even on the list at all. It was, you know, just, it was apparently so offensive to cult members that they just couldn't even have it on the list. <laughs> wow. I wonder yeah. what was offensive about it. Um, who knows? I mean, they, they restricted access to things for I super see. innocuous reasons mm -hmm. and they didn't always give explanations, but I mean, people live their lives by it, including my parents. So yeah, if it's not on the rating system, then you can't watch it. Yeah. So it sounds like a very like isolated, heavily controlled community. <laughs> yeah. Extremely controlled community. They, they needed to, they need to be in control of every aspect of life, like <laughs> including like, let me, here's a good example of just how, how crazy they were about controlling every aspect of life was um, in a lot of the communities that we went to or a lot of the compounds, they would limit the amount of toilet paper you can use. So when you're <laughs> in the bathroom, if you, you were allowed to use, I think it was three pieces or three squares of toilet paper to wipe. And if they found a used piece of toilet paper in the trash or something that was longer than three squares, there would be like an internal investigation about it. Somebody's head is going to roll, you know? <laughs> But how would they monitor that? I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess there really is no way they can know unless somebody saw you coming out of the bathroom and there's one piece of toilet in the trash or if one of the adults. <laughs> oh, and here's another fun. Here's another fun Just fact. Flush about it. it. So, <laughs> so a lot of the adults to justify certain things, like let's use the toilet paper, for example. This didn't happen. I'm just using this as a as a primo example of how this would take place. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say one of the adults found a piece of toilet paper in the trash and wanted to pin it on one of the kids that they just didn't like for whatever reason. They could literally approach the kid and say, hey, um, I thought about it and I found this problem and I prayed, I asked God and God told me that you left this in the trash and then you can get punished for it. So that was like, that, mm. that could happen for literally anything. Adults would would uh basically lean on that explanation if they're mm -hmm. presented with a question or something that they just didn't want to answer or take responsibility for you could mm -hmm. you know you could write it off that way oh i prayed about it and that's what lord told me what to do about this situation and yeah that was just like even as a kid you know that's complete bullshit because you're in the middle of this situation but it's like you can't argue that because right. to argue that you're now calling into question one the adults relationship with god and you're also implying that you're using that to you know suit your own motives which literally everybody that ever used that excuse did but mm -hmm. yeah it's just another tool that they yeah. would use to manipulate people and so you always lived in these like big big or small compounds uh no um we didn't always live in them uh, we would spend, and it's hard to identify exactly how much time we did and didn't. Uh, we bounced around a lot and traveled. We spent, my family at least, we spent a lot of time on the road and we traveled all over the country. And we would, you know, we start out in California and drive to Texas. And it would take us two weeks to get there because we're going to stop at a ton of places along the way. And we're going to go witnessing and we're going to, you know, hang out with other cult members on the way. And then we're going to get to this compound in Texas and we're going to stay there for six months, you know, 
and interact with that community. And then we're going to pack up and drive to the next one. And there'll be a couple months in between. So that was, that was pretty much my life growing up. You know, we're, we didn't really have roots anywhere. We didn't, we didn't get the chance as kids to like make any real lasting relationships with anybody. Cause as soon mm -hmm. as you're getting used to your environment, they rip you right out of it and you're on the move again. Most of my childhood memories are yeah. Traveling. It's in a car or in a trailer. Mm. A lot of the places I can't even remember where I was. I just remember the situations I was in because right. it, that was, uh, that's just how it was from my earliest memories all the way up until I was about 12. So I wanted to dig in a little bit more about your family. So can you share what your family makeup was? Sure. Um, <clears throat> my family consists of my immediate family, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 10, 10 of us kids in total. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of kids. Um, yeah. I'm not really sure about the ages. Um, honestly, I think the oldest one is like 48, 49. And the youngest one would be my youngest sister, which I believe she's 21 or 22 now. Um, and just for reference, I'm number eight in the sequence. So two younger okay. siblings and everybody else is older. So you were like later, but there's a huge range from 47 to 21 years old. Then. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge range. And there's, as far as <laughs> they're not all by the same dad. Um oh. To be complete full disclosure, I'm not really sure how many fathers there are. I've never had that conversation with my parents, but even if I did, I wouldn't like I wouldn't trust whatever answer they told me <laughs> to be accurate. So, um, I mean, and even myself, I've like I've been told from my family that the the guy my mom is with now is my real father, and you know, I I think I believe it because just looking for physical appearances. I mean, we share some physical traits that make us look alike. My little brother is 1000% <laughs> that guy's son because he looks exactly like him. <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as all, all the other siblings go, I mean, I'm just, I'm not really sure. Okay. So you have one full brother and then everyone else is like half siblings. Yeah, that's correct. I see. So do you all look a little bit different then? Um, I mean, we all look pretty Asian or brown, except for my older brothers. They look white as hell because their dad's white. <laughs> um, me, I mean. You're all a little bit mixed, right? Yeah. Well, I think my mom, my mom's, I'm not sure what her ethnic makeup is, but I know she's got, there's Filipino in her bloodline and my dad's full Filipino. And then the other kids, uh, not really sure about their dads and what they're genetic makeup is but yeah I mean for the most part we all look Asian except for my two older brothers and my oldest sister who definitely looks white <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. okay so you have a big family you all live together in the cult at the same time yes and no so because we're so uh like our because our ages have such wide gaps between them mm -hmm. we all were subject to different experiences in the group. At certain times in the cult, we were extremely dispersed though. So like for, for my own personal experience, I was only, I only got to live with um, two or three, three, I should say, three of my older siblings. And I never even met uh, my older brothers, either of them, until I was out of the cult. 
until I was like, first time I actually had a real conversation with my oldest brother was when I was getting kicked out of my parents' house and I went to go live with him. But that happens later in the timeline. Long story short, um, sometimes we would be living together and other times we wouldn't. And so the reason for that was because of the cult's um, global presence. They had compounds all over the world. Um, my parents, or my mom in particular, would sometimes send the kids to go live in other compounds. Um, like one one instance, I remember we were living, I think we were in California, somewhere in California, living in a compound. And I was, with, I was there with uh, my younger brother and my two older sisters. And the, the, one of my older sisters got in some sort of argument with my mom about something. And my mom decided to, you know, get rid of her because that's how she handles her problems. She doesn't want to get to the bottom of anything or work things out. She just, she just reacts. Um, she decided to ship my sister off to live in a commune in India. And that just like that, my sister packed her stuff and she was gone that week and I didn't see her for years. How old was she? She was 14 when she left and like 16 or 17 when she got back. Mm. But I mean, that happened on a whim. I don't think there's any planning behind that. They just, you pissed mom off and now she's getting rid of you. So you're, you know, getting shipped to the other side of the world to live in a foreign country with people that you've never met that are all probably pretty bad people. How did you see it from your perspective when you were a child? That was just reality. I didn't think anything of it. It was just, yeah, one day she's there. The other day she's not. But I do remember, I don't remember her leaving, but I do remember her coming back. And I remember mm. being so excited to see her and like, oh my God, where have you been? <laughs> and like, <laughs> she was, she brought back like Indian wardrobe. So mm. like she had like the bindi, the little sticker thing that they wear in the middle in between their eyes. She was wearing one of those and she had a whole bunch of them and her clothing was just like super colorful. And I remember just like, being totally shocked to see her again because I wasn't expecting it. Did she share uh, about her experience at all with you? No, not really. I've never, and that's the same for all of my siblings. We've never really had like a super in-depth conversation about our experiences, like how you and I are doing right now. Mm. Never done that with my family or with my parents. And I, I'm not sure why that is. I think it's just me. I mean, well, for me, I know why it is. It's because personally, I'd rather not drag up old feelings, you know, like it's one thing to talk about it with you, mm -hmm. but to go over it in detail with somebody who actually lived it and who was there, it's, it's harder. It, it, yeah. And it brings back a lot of old emotions and such that it's, there's never a convenient time to deal with that. So, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe someday, maybe they'll listen to this podcast at some point and it'll initiate a conversation, but I mean, as far as today goes, I mean, mm. no, never really gotten into an open discussion about it. Yeah. Some things are easier to be kept to yourself. Yeah. I mean, our family, we, we do talk about it, like lightly joke about it. Like if you go to a family function of mine, like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of inside jokes that have to do with, you know, making fun of the cult and the life that we all used to live and stuff that if you weren't a part of it, you just wouldn't understand what we're talking about. But I mean, lightly joking about it and getting into a deep discussion and picking it apart subject by subject is, mm -hmm. you know, it's painful and it's not easy 
and it's it's time consuming you know mm-hmm. when i got out and i started trying to assimilate into real life it, um i mean i did i just i didn't want i wanted to leave that all behind me i didn't want anything to do with the cult i didn't want to interact with old friends from it or i just wanted to start from scratch and have a clean slate and that included like distancing myself as much as i could from my own family because that's just you know by association they were a part of that so it's even if it's my siblings who didn't have a choice none of us did about growing up in that mm-hmm. i still felt like i had to put some space between myself and them if i ever wanted to you know just start from scratch and just reform my entire perspective on the world from from default i felt mm-hmm. like that's just something i had to do and i don't think i really realized that that's what i was doing at the time I think I realized that as I got older because I was just I was very distant from my family and I didn't want to be close to them. I didn't mm-hmm. uh, you know, I didn't try to to maintain or build relationships with them after the age of I'd say 12 years old. Yeah. So um what did the day in life look like for you growing up in the cult? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um I would say probably it revolved around work. I mean, like take the abuse aside and the crazy worship sessions and stuff like that. I mean, that was all, there was a lot that went into it, but a typical day was pretty much just all work. So, and by work, I don't mean going to a nine to five job or anything like that. Um, The way that the group supported themselves and raised money was from from its members you know the the cult would they had the 15 percent tithe mm-hmm. which they expected everybody to send them um but in addition to that they also had all sorts of like different um different revenue building opportunities like um like uh, for instance if you're living at a compound that particular compounds might have an outreach program where everybody goes out to their local parking lots. This could be like a mall, mall parking lot or Walmart or whatever, a shopping center. And they'll give you a bunch of like wall posters or candies or some other sort of cult paraphernalia to go and sell in these parking lots. So Hmm. There was a lot of kids in the group, as you might expect from (laughs) having it be a sex cult. Of course, there's a lot of kids. Um, they would put the kids to work, you know, which obviously that that's clear violation of a lot of child labor laws. But I mean, since you're breaking all these other laws, I mean, what's one more? Um, how old are the kids? All ages. I I remember working and, you know, selling cult stuff in parking lots for that's like some of my earliest memories. So I've always done that. I mean, I don't know what other families practices were but mm-hmm. as far as my family was concerned if you can walk and talk you're old enough to go out there and make us some money so you would be like what five yeah four? yeah i mean if wow. you're if you're that young i mean they'll send you out there with an adult somebody to you know make sure you're not running into the street or wandering off doing shit you're not supposed to but mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean generally speaking the younger kids would bring in more money because you know you're more likely to give a donation to a super young cute kid than you are to say a mm. uh, 15 16 year old teenager asking you for a donation to your church program mm. and how much would on average you, how much would you bring home 
there's a lot of variables that go into that. But um, from my own personal experience, like let's using California as a reference, if California around Christmas time, if you're dressed up as a cute little clown and you're making balloons for kids in front of Baby Gap, you could. It's pretty easy to expect to bring in anywhere from like five hundred to eight hundred dollars cash. Oh, wow. And that's per that's per person. So if you're really good at it, and you know you're if the if the person doing that is like has a lot of experience and they're good at dealing with like a lot of people and uh, you know have some basic sales skills, like yeah, I mean you could bring in a, a ton of money. Yeah. doing that um like me personally i wasn't that good at clowning that's what they called it when you dress up like a clown and you go make balloons in front of a store <laughs> uh, they call it clowning or ballooning and some of the some of the kids would got like really really good at this and they'd like make some really intricate stuff like i remember one kid uh made a motorcycle like a life-sized motorcycle out of balloons and I remember thinking it was like the craziest thing ever. Like, that's an interesting skill. Um, so what, what were you good at? <laughs> me? I was, I wasn't particularly good at anything. Honestly, I spent a lot of time postering, which is, that's what they called it when they'd give us a stack of like wall posters that you could put in a frame or hang on your wall or whatever. And these posters would have like a picture of Jesus or some other sort of, you know, cult-based artwork. And we would go and sell that stuff. And basically, yeah, that's pretty much where they kept me was in the parking lots. And mm. so, you know, they gave me my little uh, pitch that I go up and try to sell people on this stuff. And we would charge, we didn't have like a flat rate for anything. We would ask for a donation. And I say, oh, well, what do you mean a donation? Oh, it's to help our church. We're trying to go blah, 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 insert bullshit excuse for asking for money here mm -hmm. <laughs> um but yeah that's that was my forte like my my older sisters were good at ballooning so they would dress up like clowns and go make balloons mm -hmm. uh my older siblings they were all like uh musically inclined mm -hmm. like my older brother's super good on a guitar like an acoustic guitar and he can sing really well so they had him out in the Philippines performing on the street. Yeah. So there were all sorts of different ways that they would make money, but, and those are just a few, but yeah, uh, for the most part, it would be, uh, I think the most common thing was probably postering or selling seized candies and parking lots. <laughs> <laughs> and seized candies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, we, which we weren't allowed to eat by the way. So another rule of the cult yeah. was, uh, you're not allowed to eat anything with white sugar. Brown sugar is okay. White sugar is not. So oh. that pretty much takes every single thing in the candy aisle off of the menu for you as a kid. So mm. I grew up, uh, you know, always like never having tried most of the candies out there or having sweets or anything like that in our house. Um, and then they expect you to go and sell these candies in a parking lot. And if you eat any of it, you're going to get your ass beat. <laughs> And when I say you're going to get your ass beat, I don't mean like a, a light one. Like you're seriously going to be, you're going to go through mm. some serious shit if they catch you doing that. <laughs> yeah. And what was your feelings and thoughts when you were a kid doing all this like work stuff? Well, and keep in mind that, you know, I, I didn't know anything else. This is all I knew for a long mm. time. So I knew that I thought it was normal 
to be put to work and expected to do something and bring back money that you could not keep or did not get any part of. I just thought that was normal. I mean, as far as, I mean, what is normal? You know, I didn't have any, I didn't have anything to reference for that. So I just, I never questioned it. I just, I just knew that if I didn't do it, I'm going to be physically hurt. So I did it. Did you ever look at the other kids in the mall and think, why am I different? You know, you would think that I did, I would, or I did, but I, I can't recall any times where I would compare my life to somebody outside of the cult. Mm. And, it, and it sounds weird even just saying that, because it sounds like something like no shit, like anybody in that situation would do that. But I can't recall ever doing that. I mean, the closest I got to that was comparing my life to characters and novels that I would read. So, mm. and I'll get into this later, but I mean, what I mean by that is I read, cause I read a lot of books. Like that was one of the only, only forms of entertainment I had that wasn't sponsored by the cult. Oh, how did you get your hands on the books that weren't approved by the cult? I would shoplift them from bookstores, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get into that later. Okay let's, okay. let's stay on. Yeah. So you have postering, which is what I did or uh, performing in the street, like my older siblings, you know, singing and dancing. And, and I did that too, honestly, like a couple of, I remember doing that a few times. It wasn't like, super, <laughs> yeah, like group <laughs> performances for like a fire department. I remember doing one for a fire department. Um, another time at like a like a retirement home for a bunch of old people mm-hmm. and yeah I mean like I'm sure there were a few other scenarios but just off the top of my head those are the ones that stood out um so yeah there was there was a lot of different things things that the cult had the kids do to bring in money and that's how they supported you know having these properties all over the world and um yeah I mean mm-hmm. that was that and did you do this? So you mentioned earlier that you traveled a lot. Did you do all this work also while you were traveling? Yeah. Um, like, for instance, when they're moving from one compound to another, uh, you know, that means you've, you're incurring a lot of expenses as you travel because these compounds are so far apart from each other. And we wouldn't always directly go from like one compound to another. Sometimes we'll, you know, just take our time and stop and go off on little side trips all over the place. Sometimes we'd take, you know, a few months in between compounds. So the whole time that you're on the road, I mean, my whole, my parents' whole philosophy was God will provide. It's like, if you ask them, Hey, what, how are we going to budget about food? How are we going to support ourselves? You know, if we're going to be on the road by ourselves for a few months, that's their go-to answer. And what they mean by when they say God will provide is you children will provide. They're going to they're gonna put you mm-hmm. out to work and you're going to go make some money so that everybody in this trailer can eat. And, you know, that's that's how we supported ourselves and we got pretty good at it. We would, um, like, for food, you know, because you'll have off days where you go out in a parking lot, you make $20 and you work for 12 hours. So, uh, and we ended up relying on, on provisioning, which was pretty much the equivalent of begging for food with a good story. So uh, provisioning is basically when you when you go into a restaurant and you hit them with your sales pitch, tell them a sob story about your family or t- 
tell them about this church that you belong to and you're trying to raise money to go tell kids in Mexico about God or some, some bullshit story that they would give us. And basically you take that script and you go and you start calling around local restaurants until one of them decides to give you free food to support your cause. Mm. And uh, yeah, they would, my parents would have, sometimes they would call and do it themselves. Sometimes they taught, I remember they taught my older sisters how to do it and they got so good at it that they were like kind of the go-to person for provisioning. And my sister, I remember she fucking hated doing it. And she would like, she would live, this is before cell phones. So instead of going into the store in person and asking to talk to the manager, she would go to the payphone, like literally right outside the restaurant and go to the mm-hmm. payphone and sit there and do it over the phone. She hated doing it in person. I, re- mm. I remember thinking that was hilarious, <laughs> but she was good at it. Like we, we ate like at a lot of restaurants all the time, you know, and it's like, once you make one relationship, if you're in that area you can most likely pick up the phone, ask them again, if that same person, you know, is there, then chances are they'll do it again for you if they did it one time. So yeah, we, that's how we fed ourselves a lot when we were on the road. I think the most successful provisioning calls were the ones where you got a manager of a place who identified with your cause. So we would call them mm-hmm. and tell them, oh yeah, we're, we wouldn't tell them we're a cult. We'd tell them we're a non-denominal Christian organization and we're on the road we're heading down to meet up with our mm. church in Mexico. And this is what we do. You know, we'll show them like pictures of, you know, real cult members in Mexico, like helping out homeless people or doing like, you know, different social service activities and yeah. stuff like that, like community building shit. And a lot of those, these places, like they would, they would, they totally buy it, you know? And so yeah, that's it wasn't necessarily like hitting them with a sob story. It would be more about convincing them to believe in what your church is supposedly stands for. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your day to day circulated around working. Um, did you have any forms of entertainment in the cult? Because I know you talked about cult media, but were there forms of entertainment that you enjoyed as a kid or they provided so like if a day in the life of looks like pretty much like all work and stuff of course there's times where you know we've got downtime and since none of us went to school i mean yeah there were there were moments where you got to entertain yourself um the entertainment options were like incredibly limited (laughs) uh (laughs) what were they okay so as far as entertainment goes uh you had your choice of pretty much that movie rating list that I told you mm-hmm. about earlier. You've got this list of pre-approved cult movies that you could watch. Uh, same goes for like books and music. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention this. So any external input is highly regulated. So that means movies, uh, you know, it goes through the rating system I told you about. Same mm-hmm. with books that were published by people outside the cult. Same with music. We weren't allowed to listen to the radio or music at all, really, unless it was created by other cult members and approved by leadership before it was distributed. So, you know, I didn't really listen to much music growing up because I hated the music that the cult put out. thought it was horrible. We had, uh, <laughs> okay, so there were, there were Mo letters that were sent out. And in these letters would there'd be like daily like comic strips right which is pretty Mm -hmm. much uh 
pretty much like little comic strips drawn up by whoever distributed these things but it would depict like the life in uh, life in the day of david berg or one of his other like close family members and stuff and they were um most of them were about his kids which is like davidito and um they were davidito is basically david berg who is the cult member uh the cult founder it's his son and oh, mm-hmm. for whatever reason he would choose davidito as the subject of a lot of these things and made him like the poster boy for cult kids and how they should behave and we were all taught that we need to look up to this kid because he's one day going to be like the chosen one the prophet and you know he'd like put him on a pedestal and all of us kids were like from the time we were born till whenever we were just expected to accept that and to treat him like you know like something special but yeah all that to say there was uh they'd released like daily comic strips about him and like just you know weird interactions and they were always like really creepy and really strange like i remember getting my hands on one comic that they released before there was okay so i'm getting ahead of myself there was at one point in time there was um there was a newsletter sent out that said everybody had to destroy all the documentation like the mo letters and newsletters they they received but before that these things were all just laying around and anybody could pick them up and read them if they wanted to Mm -hmm. and so one of the comics i remember picking up and reading was i forget what the subject was but the comic depicted like davidito in bed with his mom and his mom's naked and they're talking about like having sex or something and how it's okay and god approves like Mm -hmm. i remember reading that and even being like super super young like six or seven years old i remember reading that and i was like okay that's weird like i I knew even back then that shit was fucked up but um yeah Yeah. that's what passed as entertainment in the cult i Um, see and have you ever met davidito no i did not meet davidito i met i mean if i did i mean Mm -hmm. i might have been in the same compound as him at one point or another but their main compound was in the philippines and by the time i was born my mom had moved back to California. So mm-hmm. if I did meet him, it would have been in passing, like while he was visiting another compound or something. And I don't recall ever meeting him. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember a lot of things from this time period. It's like part of me thinks that's by design too. Like <laughs> I wonder how much of my brain mm-hmm. like purposefully forgot a lot of these things mm-hmm. because it was just too painful to remember. Like how much repressed shit do I got in the back of my head that I just don't know about Mm, yeah have you met the founder no no I never met I never met David Berg in person I'm glad I didn't yeah exactly um and you mentioned a lot about books like the books that you snuck in that weren't approved by the cult that was easily my favorite my most favorite form of entertainment because it was so taboo and so forbidden and so off limits Mm -hmm. that not only did I get a kick out of the material, I got a kick out of just the very act of doing something that you're not supposed to. It's kind of a rush as a kid, you know? So Mm -hmm. um, like every now and then, like when when I was young and our parents would take us to go post screen and make them some money, you know, they got a lot of kids and they don't always have enough adults to watch all of them. So 
if you're old enough to go walk around by yourself and, you know, basically can be trusted to not get ran over by a car, chances are they're going to leave you alone mm -hmm. all day. They're going to drop you off in a parking lot and then go and the adults will be baby, you know, holding the hands of the younger kids, like my little brother or whatever, you know, somebody who's not old enough to be by themselves yet. And tech, like side note, literally none of us were old enough to be by ourselves. I mean, you're talking about leaving, right. talking yeah. about leaving eight and nine year olds to go and sell shit in a parking lot while you go and do something else. Like <laughs> there's no like horrible oversight there, but that's another story. But um, yeah, long story short, um, if they, you know, when they started leaving me alone by myself, I got smart and I was like, okay, well, I'm out here working and I have a pocket full of cash and, you know, who's to say I don't go and spend a little bit of this, like, how would they ever know? And um, so I started, you know, wandering off a little bit. I go to arcades and like spend a couple coins in the arcade and play games mm -hmm. that I would have got my ass beat for playing because some of these games have, you know, guns and you're shooting zombies or whatever. And it's like, that was like my first glimpse of what life was like outside of the cult was like when, you know, I started exploring a little bit. Um, and how I got into books was I, um, like I was taught to read like very, very early. Like I can barely remember. I don't remember not knowing how to read. Um, if I had to put an age on it, I'd say I probably learned like at six or seven, maybe hard mm -hmm. to say, but, um, yeah, I mean, as soon as I learned how to read, like, I just, I loved it. And I remember really enjoying the concept that you can write something on paper, and then somebody else can pick it up, look at it, and thoughts can be transferred to from one head to another that way. I just remember thinking, I was like, that's a wild concept. But um, yeah, so I had a natural affinity towards books. And the second my parents left me alone in a parking lot, I, you know, started wandering around and I ended up in a bookstore at one point and uh, I remember like just, just hanging out in this fucking bookstore all day long. And I didn't pick books like that were geared towards kids either. Like I liked, like, uh, I liked fiction novels. Like my favorite author when mm -hmm. I was like eight to 16, I think was Dean Koontz first, like. I've read mm -hmm. like pretty much every book that guy's put out ever. Um, James Patterson, another great author. That's like a crime mm -hmm. novel, like murder yeah. mystery type of writer. Um, and, you know, I like, I wasn't picky. Like I, I read literally anything, but those, I remember those two artists being top favorites of mine. So it's like, as I got older, I was like, I just knew those, like I started discovering my taste in books and mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that was it. So I would, I'd go and I'd, <laughs> uh, if I didn't have money to pay for the books, I would shoplift them and I would sneak these things home and, you know, I'd read them under the covers with a flashlight at night if we're in a compound and, you know, it's lights out at a certain time and you're going to get in trouble if you're up. I would like find a way mm -hmm. to like sneak read it. And Did you ever get caught? No, not that I can recall. That was bold of you. So brave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd always dispose of the evidence and throw the books away when I was done or if I didn't have somewhere to hide them. Um, and that, got, you know, that actually got, it didn't, it turned into something else as I got older. So like when we were in the cult, like in the thick of it, it was pretty off limits, pretty bad. And then like when uh, 
there was a there was a point in time where we were we weren't on the road like my family was living in a trailer and so we we were living in like trailer parks like mobile trailer parks that people go on like small vacations like two weeks to three weeks at a time they pack it up and then they leave but we were living in these places and there was other uh, cult members that were doing the same thing so we would go from like trailer park to trailer park together and it was like a salt a mini cult community in this trailer park everywhere we went and i remember that some of these trailer parks we stayed at had like community centers where they would have like books on shelves that anybody could just like take and read it was like one of those type of things where it's like take one leave one so I remember really, really loving that. And I read like a ton of random novels from different authors. And I started to, I started to compare like my life to the stories mm. of people that I read. Cause like, as I'm reading it, when you're that young, it's like, it's hard to really truly understand everything from these books that are like, cause they're written for adults, you know, uh, they're like full length novels. And I'm here, I am eight, mm. nine years old trying to make sense of them. And not only that, I don't have any context to refer to so it's like a lot of this stuff in the books made zero sense to me but you know you read enough of them and you start like putting the pieces together and it starts making sense books where you're outside window in the window to the yeah. outside yeah that's a great way to put it and it, not only that it was also a major form of education for me because I don't I didn't have any exposure to people outside of the cult and mm -hmm. it it doubled as one it was a window to what the outside's like even though it's like fictional books it's like you st I still got a lot out of it like how people behave outside of the cult and how they talk to each other mm -hmm. and what are social norms and expectations and you know and thing yeah one thing that really stood out to me I remember was how I remember having this thought after I read a book about um the parents in the book treated the their kid like how they interacted mm. with him and just how they just treated the child in general and i remember thinking like like drawing a drawing comparison between myself and and the characters in these books and i remember thinking like maybe it was just that book and then i'd pick up another book the next week and i'd be reading and it's like very like i started drawing similarities like how parents in books would treat their kids versus how my relationship with my parents was. And I remember like, why is it that every book I pick up, there's like this recurring theme of how people treat their children. And then here I am, like, that's nothing like what I'm experiencing. Mm, what were the differences? Just like the different, just like how you would talk to a kid. I remember thinking like how you talk to a kid, how the characters in the books talk to the kids was like mm -hmm. night and day difference between how I was spoken to. Like, and I remember thinking the kids in the books get away with murder. Like if I did what that kid did or talked to my parents in the way that kid talked, I would get beaten like senseless. And it's like these kids in these mm -hmm. books never, like <laughs> they get away with murder. And it's <laughs> like, I remember thinking that was strange. Yeah. But as far as like the stark difference that I noticed was more or less like the physical treatment and what the kids, the character, what the kids were allowed to do that I wasn't allowed. Mm -hmm. Like that was the big difference. That was what really stood out to me was that. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure there's, there is a common theme of general love that's displayed and how it's communicated. But I mean, I didn't pick up on it when I was that young. And what was it like for you discovering 
you know, the outside world stuff. So like arcade games and all these books, what were the feelings that you were, I don't know if you remember, but the feelings you were feeling when you started to taste the outside world and when you started questioning your own reality, what was that like? You know, this is one of those things that's going to sound funny again, but like I didn't really question it, even though I was getting to experience little glimpses of, you know, mm-hmm. what life is like for people outside. I think I don't think I ever really questioned why I was in the situation I was in. I just that's just what it was. Um, mm. I mean, when you're in the cult, they teach you that, like, you know, that how you're living is very different than what people outside of the cult or of how how they experience life and go through it mm-hmm. so knowing that is from right from the start you know okay what how we live is not normal according to society they they teach you that and they teach you that our way of living is better because you know xyz mm. i never really i never really went down that rabbit hole too deep at least not when i was super young right so Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I never really thought about it at that age. I thought about it a lot as I got older, but I didn't, when I was in the moment, I didn't think about it. I just knew that A, it was different and B, I'm going to get my ass beat if I try to voice my opinion about it. And I'm stuck in it because that's just, that's my situation. What else am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I can't run away. I can't get out on my own. So this is just, it is what it is. I never really questioned how much better. I never tried to quantify how much better or worse life outside mm. might be. And it, it sounds like you had to go through a lot of physical abuse at the cult. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, high level view of the cult situation. It was, they, there was a lot of sexual abuse that went on and that's what, eventually drew the attention of uh, authorities all over the world and that's what you know got the cult its reputation and that's you know that's what the media likes to put on display is the rampant sexual abuse that went on in there um what isn't so widely covered is just the regular physical abuse that could have been you know anything from like your standard issue slap on the wrist to getting locked in a room for a few days and beaten every single day. It, mm-hmm. it really just depends on several factors that include uh, one, who did you piss off? Who's the adult that is, that is looking to hurt you. Um, it could also have to do with the specific compound you're in. Certain compounds had like rules to, of, you know, rules around punishing kids. And then other ones just, there's no rules, anything goes, we don't give a fuck about anything here. So it was really uh, dictated by the environment, what we would go through. But um, like physical abuse, like beatings, that was pretty common, like everywhere. And in, in the environment I was in, because it was like such a, such a communal sort of environment, like any adult, could punish anybody's kids. There were no specific rules around who's allowed to hurt whose kids. So that being said, if if you're living in a compound that has 50 adults and 20 kids, 
it was pretty common practice to have like one or two teenagers go and babysit the entire group's kids while the adults go and have group sex or some other shit in another wing of the house. Um, so that being said, they would also allow, they would permit um, those same teenagers or other adults to punish their kids if they get out of line. So like, for instance, we lived in a, in a commune and I can't remember what state it was, but I remember living under the same roof as my parents for like six months and seeing them like maybe one or two times the entire time that we were there, even though we're living in the same house, it's big enough to, and separated enough so that the kids are doing, you know, kids stuff and the adults are on their side of the house doing whatever the adults are doing. So when you have like one adult watching that many kids, if you got shit out of luck and got an adult babysitting you that just had it out for you, I mean, it could get pretty bad. What do you mean? Like, okay. So for instance, uh, the group was pretty big on public humiliation. Like that was a, that was a mm-hmm. recurring theme. Like at a lot of the places that we went, they were really big. Like if a kid, if you fucked up, they're going to drag you in front of everybody and publicly humiliate you. And that could be, you know, something as simple as walking you out in front of the group and having, having to admit, oh, I did this and I'm sorry for that. And I'm never going to do it again. It could be just a simple statement or they could strip you naked and beat your ass in front of everybody just to prove like for literally anything, this could be for something big or small, doesn't matter, but certain places and certain individuals were a little more aggressive about it. Like one of the, one of the homes I went to when I was little, I remember uh, being excited to get there at first. And then um, like while they were giving us a tour of the place, I remember they showed us the room where they would take kids when they, to punish them because it was in like a track home community. They couldn't have like yells being heard from outside the house. So they soundproofed like a room and dedicated it just to punishing the kids. Wow. Because, you know, God forbid the neighbors hear children screaming all the time. And yeah, like we could go in there and they'd have like egg cartons on the walls and like hanging racks for like different utensils that you use to beat kids. They had like a wire hanger and a big wooden spoon, like a big wooden cooking spoon. And they'd have like a fly swatter, like just random Mm -hmm. shit hanging off the wall. And you can like pick your instrument of torture, if you will. Yeah. I remember that that place was fucking horrible. We didn't stay there long, but I ended up in that room one time. It's pretty bad. Was it a common thing for you? Yeah. <laughs> Very. <laughs> like a everyday thing, every week. What was the what was it like uh, for you? It's hard to say because that really depended on that that depended on where you were at and what commune you were at. So certain houses, yeah, I get hit every single day. And there's nothing you could do about it because once an adult decided that you're possessed by the devil, I mean, they're just going to beat it out of you and they'll use any excuse. Like you can get, you get beat for looking at an adult the wrong way when you pass them in the hallway. It can literally be something as simple as that. You don't have to say something to get in trouble. Or it could be that, um, yeah, maybe you didn't clean the dishes in the way that they asked you to, or some something totally innocent and ex- excusable could be, could be reason that you're getting your ass beat now, you know, like that's, there was no rhyme or reason, but 
the frequency of it was pretty much decided by your environment. Some houses, you know, it was totally cool. And some of the adults were like super lenient and understanding like the, the houses where lower tier members, like brand new members and FM members were, I remember those being the best because it was like, yeah, we're not getting punished for anything. I can, I can run around and be as crazy as I want and nobody's going to say shit. And it's like, at the worst, my parents will give me a look. And if they give me that, you better knock it off. Look like, I just know I'm going to get my ass beat later, but like as far as being publicly humiliated goes, I'm not going to get dragged in public. I'm not going to, you know, be punished extensively for a long amount of time. Like it was just like you learned what you could and couldn't get away with. And it sounds like these weren't regular ass beatings, right? Like normal people would be like, oh, yeah, my parents used to beat my ass when I was a kid. But I'm trying to imagine what it was like for you in the cult when you're getting your ass beat. And it must be a different level. That's funny that you brought that up. That's actually a good point because saying I got my ass beat is very subjective. So to clarify on that a little bit, um, like I, when I say you get your ass beat, I don't mean just like getting spanked. I think a regular punishment might involve like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's like if you're living a normal life outside the cult and you mouth off to your parents and you're 10 years old, uh, getting your ass beat might be they bend you over their knee smack your ass really hard a few times and shake you. Don't you ever do that again? Like that's what a normal ass beating is to me. Maybe like, that's what I consider normal when you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess it's different for different families, but yeah, mine was like that. Yeah. So the same applies to the cult community. Um, you could, you know, if you're getting your ass beat in there, it's roughly the same thing, except I would say the reasoning behind it is different. Um, and also how they're going about it. So there's plenty of instances where, yeah, it was nothing criminal going on. It's just a regular punishment for a kid, you know, and certain adults were like less, were a little more gentle with the kids. Like my dad, for instance, um, my dad, he in particular did not like hurting kids. God bless his soul. He would like, I remember if my dad was punishing me, it would be a pop on the mouth. He talks like that because he's he's got a really thick accent. He's like, you get that pop on the mouth, which is just a really hard flick in your cheek. <laughs> and it's like, that's it. That's all you got. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. And then if you get caught by, say, um, another adult, like there's 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 a couple of them that would, they'll, you know, they'll literally hold you down on the ground or have another cult member hold you on the ground while they pick something to whip you with and literally whip your ass your butt cheeks or your legs or something below the waistline so that it's not like too visible and if that's not enough you know sometimes they they like take it a step further and like they wouldn't like strangle you or choke you i remember having one adult put his knee on my fucking head one time and that was mm -hmm. um i mean there's there was a lot of different instances that were uniquely fucked up um, there was one adult who was known for getting off on it. Like this guy would, he would be like the first to punish kids for literally anything. And you could like see him getting hard in his pants as he's doing it. Like, so you just know these people are getting off on it. Mm. Um, like, and not all of them are like that. It's where there's a particularly statistic motherfucker that enjoyed it. But I imagine there's plenty of mm -hmm. them because, you know, you would, it takes a special type of fucked up to 
go and punish somebody else's kid that's not yours, that you barely even know just because you're under the same roof and you can, and then you, you're going to do them physical harm because of what some perceived slight against you because the kid looked at you wrong or you don't like how he responded to your question or didn't look you in the eyes when mm -hmm. you responded to his question. Like there's so many things that, that, you know, prompted physical abuse that it was just, you can't even track them all. It could have mm -hmm. been literally anything. So as a kid, you learn to walk on eggshells and just watch everything yeah. you say and weigh every response before you say it and say less than say the least amount of words to communicate what you need to communicate to yeah. minimize the possibility of offending somebody and incurring a punishment. It's just, it becomes part of your default way of interacting with every, not just cult members, but with everybody. Like to this day, I still, like I still pick out certain traits that I exhibit that drives me nuts, but I know it's just leftovers from living in survival mode as a kid for my whole life. Mm. And what, what are those traits? <sighs> like disassociation, like when, like in, in situations that are super emotionally charged, like breaking up with somebody or getting into a heated argument with anybody. Like sometimes I just check out, I just disassociate. And when that happens, you're, it feels like I'm no longer there. I'm just, I'm an autopilot. And the person who's left behind when that happens is, it's just a cold, unemotional version of myself. And I can't feel anything. I don't care about anything. And it's, I think it's just a way of preserving myself because, and I think it's something that was learned as a kid because that's how I would handle dealing with like, you know, everything that I, yeah, well, not just getting beat, just dealing with everything, the stress of the entire mm. environment, you know, I mean, yeah, sure. Getting, mm. getting physically hurt sucks, but there's so much more that goes into it besides that, that it's like, I just needed some way to turn it off. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. I'll just, I just disassociate, check the fuck out. And it, it's not, I, I didn't realize this until later on life too, that it's not really healthy because as useful as it is to, to do that. And it's not always what's best in a, in a situation, like take the breakup scenario for instance like a situation like that might call for a little more emotional intelligence and maybe you need to you know listen to what the other person's saying instead of just shutting down and closing yourself off and putting up walls like i mean it's hard to control it just happens when it happens yeah. um luckily it usually only happens in like highly tense like emotional situations but when it mm -hmm. does happen um it's hard to snap out of it because, and it's, I, I imagine it's really frustrating for the person on the other end too, because like I go from being like, you know, an empathetic non-judgy person and, you know, trying to, I go from being fucking normal to just a blank robot that lacks like any emotion, mm -hmm. zero empathy. And the only way you're going to get through to me and get me to, to listen to you, to what you're saying is if you hit me with like, pure logic and facts so if we're having an argument about something that isn't easily broken down and explained in a factual and logical way like emotions mm -hmm. you know i mean 
Mm -hmm. good luck getting me out of that. Cause once I'm there, I mean, like it's going to take some time for me to snap out and you know, it's like stuff like Mm -hmm. that to where it's, it's not useful and it's actually more damaging than anything else. But yeah. But I guess when you're a kid, like you didn't do it intentionally, you just sort of learned it so you can survive. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's, I think that's exactly what it is. And I don't know, maybe it's a trauma response. So is that how you got through the beatings as well? I know you mentioned it, you touched on it a bit earlier. I mean, I didn't always check out. It's not like you can, you can choose to just, you know, check out like that. But um, yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I did a lot of the times and there's a number of other tactics that you learn. Like (laughs) uh, I remember in one compound, there was a, there was an adult who would schedule your ass kicking. Like he was like, if you fucked up, you'd be like, put it on the schedule and make you like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And like add anxiety leading up to the event. And so you're sitting there and, you know, you'll see your, see your punishment on the schedule and you know, it's for later that mm-hmm. evening. So it's like um, me and a couple of the other kids, we would start like every time it happened, we'd like get something thick like toilet paper and try to stick it in our back pockets. Cause this guy didn't pull your pants down to spank your bare ass. He just like did it through your pants. And so we would like <laughs> try to buckle them and like stuff toilet, some sort of padding down your pants. So it didn't hurt as much. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I think he actually caught on and that actually pissed him off more. So that only worked for so long. Was there other things that helped you get through? Yeah. Uh, like I remember, I remember um, one adult, their thing was like, if you're not crying, then they're not hitting you hard enough. And, you know, you're a kid like me, you've been getting hit your whole life, like kind of takes a lot to make you to bring you to tears, you know? So, Mm -hmm. and here's the catch though. It's like, if you don't cry, they're not going to stop. They're going to keep hitting you until you cry because that's what they want to see. And that way they know, okay, he's hurting enough now. And so, Mm. you know, after a few interactions with this person, uh, I learned that it's like, okay, this will be over faster if you turn on the waterworks for him give them what they want, show them some tears and then turn it off. Cause they'll like, his thing was he'd like beat you until you're crying and then he'll beat you because you're crying because you're making noise until you shut up. So mm-hmm. it's like, what, you know, that's kind of a conundrum. Like, do you want tears or not? So mm-hmm. the solution to that was to turn on the waterworks, you know, let's just try to make yourself cry as soon as possible and then try to shut mm-hmm. that off as soon as they, as soon as possible. So like turn it on and then turn it off real quick. Or like mm-hmm. leave it on mm-hmm. for long enough for them to get their kicks and then turn it off. So it's like you kind of learn just, you know, by trial and error how to deal with certain people. And that was like one of the one of the ways I was able to, you know, kind of mitigate it a bit and make it less worse. So it sounds like you had to learn everyone like different styles. Yeah. I mean, you learn to do it in autopilot, though. You learn to read read between the lines of what people are saying and look into Mm. tonality and pick up on slight nuances in speech patterns and just stuff like that, you know, just indicators that you're in danger. You just, you end up being super, super highly sensitive to stuff like that that could trigger it. So Mm -hmm. um, it turns you into an overthinker is what I was going to say. It makes you analyze every situation way too much. And, you know, in the real world, sometimes 
not everything has that deep of a meaning. Sometimes it's something can be taken at face value, but because of that experience or that part of my life, like it kind of, you can't really turn that off. So you end up applying it to everything and it's not always useful to say the least. But it sounds like when you were a kid, you're like not only walking on eggshells, but like everything you did was like controlled or watched or all these things. Like, did you know who you were? Like your personality? Were you a funny kid? Were you an athletic kid? Like, did you have an opportunity to figuring out like what kind of kid you were? What kind of personality you had? So, and that's something I actually became really 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 aware of once we had already gotten out like when I was like a teenager like between the ages of Mm -hmm. like 12 and 16 um I remember like being realizing that I was one self-aware and two I was aware that (laughs) I've had I was lacking in the personality department so and this was common for like a lot of not just this cult but for pretty much every cult that I've ever like seen examples of or anything like that like it's a pretty typical thing for the kids to be like completely devoid of regular childlike characteristics you know because you're Mm -hmm. so suppressed and you're so scared of being hurt Mm -hmm. or punished or whatever that you're just you're afraid to you can't express yourself in any way because everything's dangerous so Mm -hmm. and it's like and people would always like when we were in the group and we meet people from outside the cult or have any sort of uh, interactions with people not in the cult. It was always like such a common thing for them to say, wow, your kids are so well behaved. I can't look at like my kids are running around being crazy and yours is just sitting there with a book. Like that was like such a common compliment that all of us kids in the group heard all the time. And it's like, we would hear that and just Mm -hmm. kind of laugh to ourselves. It's like, yeah, because we'll get our asses beat later if we do. (laughs) But yeah. I, I had another thing, like when I was little, I mm. had, it wasn't, I'm not sure if it was a real speech impediment or if it was just like, like, I don't know what it was, but I had this thing about me where if somebody said something to me, I had to mumble it back to them. And it was almost <laughs> like OCD where it's like, mm-hmm. I can't respond to you unless I mumble it back. So if you say like, what time is it today, Joe? I'll be like, mm-hmm, and then I'll hit you and then I'll talk to you. And it was like, I remember that really upset a lot of people. And it's like, I had to, I had to get my ass beat a few times before I learned to like reel that in and be like, look, you don't have to mumble everything back. And it's like, I remember (laughs) thinking about it again, like when I was like in my twenties, I was like, damn, maybe I had a speech impediment and they literally just beat it out of me. Like, (laughs) it might've been what happened or I don't even know if it's a speech impediment. Maybe it's just some odd thing I had to do. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So we talked a little bit, we talked a lot about physical abuse. What about sexual abuse? Did you experience any sexual abuse? Mm, depends on how you define it. Like, did anybody touch me? No, I was never raped by anybody in the cult. Um, verbally, like, I don't think is verbal considered sexual abuse, like just talking about stuff to kids because the cult culture was like very open about sex and that's with everybody with kids, with teenagers, you know, it doesn't matter what age you mm-hmm. are. If you're in it, you then you're highly aware of what sex is, how it works. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, too young to understand it, like you're going to know about it and you're going to be taught about it. 
So, so you were exposed to sex and sexual language and all of that at a very young age, but you were not personally uh, sexually abused. Correct. Yeah, I wasn't personally sexually abused. There was a lot of younger boys in the same houses that were like the Colts, uh, mm-hmm. the Colts son, for instance, is a perfect example. That guy, he was raped by his babysitter, his mother, and probably a few other people too. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. for me personally, no, I never had, uh, I never was involved in like any of the group sex or anything like that that went on in the houses. Um, I was taught about sex and it was encouraged between kids, like by the adults in these communities. It was like, they're very open about it. They teach kids about it. And they would, they taught us all that it wasn't something to be ashamed of and that it's a natural part of life. And Jesus agrees with it. And while we're on the topic, Jesus says it's okay to share your body with others. So if somebody asks you, you should do it. Like they would then go on to mix in their own personal beliefs and propaganda bullshit. So the kids are being great. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like. like the cult yeah. was. It was extremely abusive towards women, but um, like if you're a if you're male, if you're a boy, then you kind of got to eat a lot easier than a girl would have who's the same age. So, because the cult was so anti, it was very homophobic. Like they were extremely mm-hmm. vocal about about that. Um, they weren't for like for women though. It was a totally different story. Like girls who were raised in the cult or born into it like they got it so much worse than any other uh group in terms of sexual yeah abuse? well i would say in terms of abuse period because they weren't spared from just regular physical abuse they got hurt just as much as everybody else um but you you mm-hmm. add sexual abuse to that and it makes it so much worse um yeah so to sum it up no, I wasn't, I wasn't molested. I wasn't raped. I was very acutely aware of my surroundings and what was going on in them. And so I was aware of sex and what that entails and everything associated with it, um, you know, for pretty much as long as I can remember. And did anybody in the cult ever try to protect you or the kids in any way? Uh, my siblings, they they would sometimes speak up you know i mean they 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 felt bad for me because they had to go through it too and i mean but really i mean it's it was futile there was nothing anybody could do if you're a kid and you're begging an adult to stop hurting your sibling i mean it's they're not going to listen like there's nothing you can do about that all you can do is watch and then try to console them after the fact how about your parents yeah yeah my parents were aware of what was going on but they were they were living in denial my mom in particular like she would you'd go and tell mom what happened and she just she either wouldn't care or she would gaslight you and tell you you're making that up that didn't happen when you know you just went through this experience i don't really know what the reasoning was behind that like how can you how are you gonna look your child in the eye when they're saying that one of your friends or one of your church members just, you know, just hurt me and then tell them that they're lying and making it up. Like why I I never understood that. And I confronted my, Mm. my mom about it one time 
And that was enough for me to never want to talk to her about it again. Cause I saw what her stance was. It was, I asked her about it after we had left the cult after we had, I think I was like 13, 14 years old. And mm-hmm. I don't know how it came up in conversation, but I asked, I asked her, I was like, what did you know about any of this? Like, how can you not know what's going on? And she just, she outright denied it. She says, you're hearing, you're, you're just making up stories. You know, and that never happened to you. And I was like, how are you going to tell me? I don't rem- like, I remember these things, mom. Like, how are you going to tell me I'm making that up? She says, you must've made that up because you heard that story from one of your older brothers and sisters. And it's just, it's not real. You don't know what you're talking about. Like she just like totally. Wow. Yeah. And it, it upset me so much to the point where I was like, okay, well, mm-hmm. if she really believes that, then this is going nowhere. I don't want to talk about it. It's pointless. And mm-hmm. if she, if she knows better and she's still choosing to say that, that's also a dead end because where do I go from there? If she won't even admit it. Yeah. And so from my perspective, I just said, you know what, like this is not the hill I want to die on. Like mm-hmm. I'm okay with not knowing whatever. It's not like it makes a difference if I know anyways, it's not going to give me any closure. It's not going to, it's not going to do me any good getting an answer out of it. So I just left it. Mm. So it sounds like adults are pretty much useless in the cult. But how about the kids? Did you help each other out? Mm, yeah. I mean, as much as we could as children, I remember mm-hmm. like, okay, so um, there's one compound that had um, like, okay, so the cult in general, like they were very heavy on the teach on Christianity and the teachings associated with it. So um as you might know, you know, the story of Jesus goes that he died on the cross for your sins, right? Mm-hmm. And the this particular compound took that step, took that story and took it a step further. And they had this rule in place when it came to kids getting punished, because this was one of those places that was like, liked to uh, like prayed you out in public and like strip you naked and hurt you. And so pretty much make an example out of you for all the other kids. Mm-hmm. And because Jesus died for your sins, like you can, as children, you guys can practice this by uh, like, they had a rule that allowed you to pretty much take and take a beating for somebody else. So mm. there was, um, there was this one kid he was like, a little bit younger than me. It was like kind of frail. And uh, I remember like he did something and I volunteered to take it for him because like that particular adult was just, he was a little, he was worse than like most, than all the other ones. Like this guy was one of those guys that just enjoyed it just a little bit too much and did it just a little bit too often. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've already been punished by this guy before. So I know what I can expect I already know all my tricks, turn the tears on, turn them off, you know, like I can handle this. So like the kid was like, like, I just, he, he didn't like, I just didn't think that he would handle that that well. And like, I don't know why, like, I don't, it wasn't like a regular thing for me to feel empathetic towards other children. Cause it's like, we're all in the same situation, you know, but mm-hmm. I, just, I don't know why I just, I just did it that day and, and I volunteered and took that for the kid and 
didn't think anything else of it. Like it just it was what it was. So it was fine. But so you saved the kid from a beating yeah. that day. That day, I mean, who knows what happened later? But um, yeah, like like that's one way that you can help other kids in your environment out. I guess is if you're willing to sacrifice your own ass, <laughs> like literally sacrifice your own ass. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, like what? It's like so depressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel so sad just listening to your story. Um, so what was your earliest memory in the cult? Like the first, first thing I can remember that sticks out to me, mm-hmm. like the very, very, very earliest thing. Like if I'm looking back as far as I can go, there was, um, it's like the first memory is a ball pit. It's like a McDonald's ball pit. And then the second memory is, um, <laughs> It was uh, CPS raiding the house that we were in. The Child yeah. Protective Services? Or I don't even okay. know if it was C- Child Protective Services. It might have just been like local authorities or FBI. I don't, honestly, I don't know. I was so young and it's like, it's just all I remember is just like a little bit of the context and bits and pieces and then what my siblings told me afterwards. But um, I guess the house we were in got raided. It was like a community home with a bunch of families in there. And they had all the adults separated from the kids. Somebody had called about child abuse. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that one didn't have a soundproof beating room and the neighbors heard. But the cops got called for some reason, went through the house, and they were interviewing the kids and they were interviewing the adults, you know? And Mm -hmm. um, they pulled me aside and I was scared because... I was, um, you know, the, to give you some context about this before I get into that, um, one of the daily practices in all the cult housing and like it's in the newsletters that they send out and everything, it was they teach the parents to train kids how to handle certain situations like the police being in your house or if your child is called to the stand to testify in court, like they, it was part of like our daily practices to like rehearse what to say, how to say it, how to answer questions regarding abuse, et cetera. So when this happened and, you know, they pulled me aside and they're asking me these questions, like I knew how to answer these questions because I had been trained on it. So they were asking me questions. And I remember it was, um, it was like a younger female agent and um, like, she's asking me questions about um just like how have you been treated uh has anyone hurt you how often do they hurt you where do they touch you like you know all the cookie cutter questions that you would ask Mm -hmm. to identify if the child's being abused and um apparently i answered them all perfectly because nobody got arrested that night they left the house without you know without arresting anybody or filing any charges like and i was um i remember being confused by the time I left the interview, I was confused because um, like at some point during the interview, she started crying. And mm. I remember seeing that and like not asking her why she was crying. But I remember like kind of laughing inside because I was like, why are you crying? Like if anybody gets hurt here, it's going to be me when I, the second you guys leave, I'm going to get my ass beat. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're crying. <laughs> but um. Did she maybe know that you were lying? I think so. Honestly, I think that's what it was like. And I didn't realize that until years and years later. I think she was crying because she could 
I think it was just that obvious that I was rehearsing what I was told to say and how mm-hmm. to handle the situation. And I think she was probably crying out of yeah. frustration that like the only way you could, she could help me is if I'm honest and I give her something to, to take action on. And I was just, I was doing, I was just too brainwashed. I was doing, I was doing exactly what they taught me to do. I was lying my ass off and, mm-hmm. and telling them exactly what they needed to hear to get out of there without arresting anybody. And like when they mm-hmm. left, um, like I was like praised for it. They're like, oh my God, you handled that so well. And that was perfect. This is why we do all that coaching and training. Like, you know, the house was wow. just praising me for handling it the way I did. And how did you feel? Uh, I guess validated. I mean, I didn't know that person was mm-hmm. trying to help me. Like looking back, I want to kick myself in the ass because it's like, dude, that person would have made your, that handling that one conversation would have made my life drastically different. And I mean, for better or worse, who knows? I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's uh, it's my earliest memory. And how has your experience with abuse within the cult impacted your ability to trust and feel safe around others? Hmm. I think I feel safest when I'm alone in terms of like, like mentally, Mm. like Mm. being alone is my default preference. I like, I'm not afraid to be alone with my thoughts. I'm completely all right with going a week, two weeks without speaking to another human. (laughs) Like all I really need to be okay is just, I, I need my books and that's really it like I can I don't need social interaction to feel all right but I'm not sure if that is because of what I went through in the cult or if I'm just naturally introverted and that's just who I am I'm not really sure I I think that it might be a mixture actually now that I'm like saying it out loud I think a lot of my introversion or preference to introversion is from that background. Mm -hmm. And because it's like, that's as a kid, that was my safe place. That's, you know, that's where it's all right to be who you are is in your head. You trust yourself, but can you, do you, can you still trust others Uh, today? It's, I mean, my, my philosophy when it comes to that, it's just like, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt when it comes to issues around mm-hmm. trust. Like if a situation calls for me to trust somebody and it doesn't have to do with like anything major, like my default is going to be, yeah, sure. I trust you until you give me a reason not to. But the problem mm-hmm. with that is mm-hmm. like when someone goes and violates that and proves themselves to be untrustworthy, it's instead of like blaming them, I take the blame myself. And I do that because I feel like I should have judged their character better and I should have known better than to trust them. And so, you know, mm-hmm. somehow them violating my trust turns into I should have done better and I end up shouldering that guilt. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's one thing to sit here and say it. I know it sounds ridiculous. Like, and like, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's just, that's how it works in my head. And I know it doesn't, it's not fair to me. And I know it doesn't make much sense, but it that's just how I felt my work I noticed. But that's how the cult is, right? Everything is your fault. So you learn it's easy for you to 
shoulder the guilt because that's what you've been doing your entire time in the cult. Yeah, it could be that. It could be just a high level of accountability. I mean, like to a point where it's too much. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. It's what you went through in the cult. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just, I've been, I've prided myself on being like strictly independent and self-sufficient for so long that Mm -hmm. like when something like that happens and it's out of my control, like I, maybe that's just a way of regaining some control is by taking accountability and be like, oh, I could have controlled that if I wanted. If I had done better, I could have controlled that. And in a way, it's giving a little power yeah. back to myself. So what aspects of life in the cult were the most challenging for you? Mm. <laughs> I'd say the cult in itself was challenging. But if I'm going to pick it out, I'm going to break it out by what aspects of it, huh? Um Maybe I'd say the most prominent is the isolation factor. So being isolated from outside influences contributed to my antisocial tendencies, or at least I think. Like like I said, maybe I'm introverted by default and I would have been an introvert no matter what situation I was born into. But I think a high amount or, you know, to a degree – the isolation that I experienced in the group contributed to how I am as an adult and my level of introversion today. So like I prefer like today as an adult today, I, I prefer to be alone versus hanging out in a group. And Mm -hmm. I think that my experience in the cult kind of, um, kind of led to a to a sort of environmentally fabricated introversion kind of if that makes sense mm-hmm. um yeah there's that so like being cut off from the outside world and having all your inputs limited i think that was challenging mm-hmm. especially when i got out and i had to sort figure out how to function in society that was like oh it was big that was really difficult i think another one was probably um, like being forced to work as a kid, like growing up and being forced to be independent made me self-sufficient as an adult. And now mm. like um, accepting help from anyone under any circumstances, like it's difficult for me to do. Um, mm, like see. having like being raised to be self-sufficient and like completely independent and take care of yourself and don't get in, you know, don't be a burden to anybody else around you. Like that whole way of being raised. Um, I think it's translated into me sometimes expecting that from others. And, you know, of course you can't expect that from others. Not everybody had the same experience I did. And I think sometimes I forget that and I get frustrated when other people aren't pulling their own weight or, aren't mm. aren't behaving in a way that I can understand, you know? Like if people are too needy, mm-hmm. it makes me upset. And if somebody's got like a lot of baggage and they're putting it on others and it's like something that you should just manage on your own, like it's I get frustrated pretty easily about that. Another challenging aspect of, you know, the cult and like leaving. Another thing I noticed was um, growing up, like growing up around so many fucked up people, made me like 
extremely aware of the types of people that are in the world and what they're capable of. So being exposed to like the worst of human nature when you're that young, it, um, it shapes your worldview. Like for me, it's really hard to, to see the world through a positive lens when I've, you know, from a young age, I've just been, I know different. Like I know everybody in the world isn't bad, but everybody has the capacity for it. If under the right circumstances, everybody has the right capacity for it. And I, it's just hard for me to ignore. And it's also hard for me mm-hmm. to be optimistic about society and humanity in general, when I know there's people like that out there. So mm-hmm. that, um, I think that is probably the hardest thing to get past for me is realizing that, look, although you were born in this situation and you experienced this, like the world is still a beautiful place full of great experiences and you know it's not all bad um i think sometimes i forget that and i just i operate under the assumption that everything is shit and you know mm-hmm. it's yeah. uh oh, that's a tough one is it tough for you to be on this podcast right now talking about your past yeah like I was going through my notes earlier preparing for this podcast and that was difficult I'd be a little bit easier like once we got talking but I mean I guess it just doesn't get easier it's just it's one of those uncomfortable topics that I mean it's just it just isn't in any way you cut it like I'm I'm glad I'm doing it though because I think in a way yeah. it's helping me sort my thoughts out by giving words to the thoughts that I've had my whole life. And mm-hmm. I, I think overall, I do think it's productive and I think it's worth going through being uncomfortable for a little bit to get there. So I think there yeah. is value in this. Well, I think you're very brave. Mm-hmm. Thank you for opening up and sharing and i think we'll wrap up here because we've talked for a while now and so we'll move on to part two where we'll talk more about your life outside of the cult sounds good thanks for having me on yeah and i just want to thank you again for sharing i know it's not easy to relive those moments um so thank you so much no of course anytime (laughs) yeah thank you so much bye